As Ben said, our reading today is 2 Corinthians 7. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as, God's in, as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I'm glad I can have complete confidence in you. Good evening, everyone. It's good, good to be here with you tonight, and uh, please keep your Bibles open. Um, in case you're wondering why you've got um, a strange outline that's kind of stapled together, um, Gav was going to preach tonight, um, uh, and Gav's outline's underneath this one, so you know if you really want, you could have a look at Gav's outline and ponder how he might have preached it. But Gav's been unwell, and um, he's, he's on the mend, but um, he asked if I could uh, preach tonight, so I'm... Um, so that's the outline you've got, 2 Corinthians 7, the one that's on, on the top there. Let's pray and then get into this part of God's word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together this evening. Uh, we thank you uh, that we can, can uh, spend this time thinking about your word. And we ask that you give us insight and understanding. We ask that you shape us according to your will. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs chapter 27 Verse 6 
There it is. It says, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Question, would you rather a friend who you know and trust um, take to you with a proverbial knife, wound you as a friend, or would you prefer uh, the flattery and praise of someone who may in fact be an enemy? I think it's a bit of a tough one, maybe more so for some than others, for people such as myself who just love words of affirmation, you know, just flattery, praise, bring it on. I tell my kids, I don't even care if it's insincere, just, you know. (laughs) That's great, Dad. Yep. Um, But this, this proverb, it warns us that someone who multiplies kisses, who lavishes flattery, who lavishes praise, they may actually be an enemy. There's a warning there. But the proverb is also, it's it's warning, but it's also saying that sometimes a friend needs to cause us wounds out of love for us. That is, they need to speak a a hard but loving truth. And and it hurts. It, it It can wound you when a friend tells you a hard but loving truth. But it can be trusted. They can be trusted because they're a friend. Wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. Well, I wonder if you agree with that in practice. Does that work? Do we actually prefer a wound from the friend? I don't know that we do, because I think we like to be liked. Uh, What people think of us matters a lot to us. And uh, at least on the surface of things, we, we generally prefer kisses to wounds. We like to be liked. And yet rebuking or correcting or wounding is, well, it is difficult It is difficult, but it's necessary sometimes. I wonder if you've had to rebuke a friend uh, recently or rebuke someone recently, or maybe you've been rebuked by someone recently. And I don't mean uh, that someone's just, you know, vented at you, had a go at you and wounded you in that way. That's not the kind of wounds I'm talking about. But the rebuking, the correcting uh, of someone out out of genuine love for them and a desire to do them good. I think it's difficult. And it's something we often shy away from because of fear, maybe fear of harming the relationship, fear of being perceived as um, judgmental and and hypocritical, maybe fear of actually being judgmental and hypocritical. And so we we can shy away from it. Or maybe we kind of blunder into things in an effort to, to correct, but really it's, we do it with mixed motives, wounding, being wounded, um, perhaps out of love, perhaps out of some other less pure motive. It's difficult and it's painful, but as we see, sorry, we see the difficulty and the pain in this part of God's word uh, tonight, where Paul had to rebuke the Corinthians. And that's what lies in the background of chapter 7. It's a bit of a complicated puzzle working out uh, 2 Corinthians and how it all worked and relates to you know, 1 Corinthians and, and visits that Paul talks about, it seems likely that, um, that there were actually four letters, uh, two of which we, we still have, uh, and that there were at least two visits up to this point with a, a third planned visit. On the first visit that Paul uh, came to them, he brought them the gospel. Uh, then later came a, a second visit, which was a, a tough one. It had its moments. Uh, and Paul wasn't uh, pleased with some of the things that he found on that visit. Things didn't go so well. And, and we can kind of build a picture as we, we put some of the pieces together. Uh, so piece number one is in chapter 12 and 13. 
uh, where it come up on the screen here. He, he's concerned that, that uh, there's, there's been people who've been caught up in sexual sin and still haven't repented. And so he says in uh, 12 verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. So he's concerned when he comes to visit again that, that they won't have responded, they won't have changed. Um, second piece, he's concerned, just the verse before this actually in, in 1220, that he might encounter discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. It's a pretty, um, pretty rough list of things, isn't it? Um, presumably that's because that's what he's encountered last time on, this, on the, the painful visit. Piece number three is back in chapter 2, verse 5, where he, he talks about someone who has caused grief, it seems, to, to him and to them, which Paul says that he has forgiven. So putting those pieces together, what happened on this, this second visit? I think a reasonable reconstruction is that uh, some people were caught up in unrepentant sexual sin and for which Paul rebuked them. And in response, some people cause trouble, discord, jealousy, slander. Who are you, Paul? Who are you to tell us what to do? And as a whole, the Corinthians failed to deal with things properly. And so Paul left them and then wrote them this, the hard letter that he talks about, which we don't have. He sent it to them with Titus. That letter caused them sorrow. It hurt them. And he didn't do that lightly. Uh, he says in, in uh, 2 verse 4, he says, For I wrote you out of, sorry, it's on the screen here. Um, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. So he wrote this letter, and at first he had some regrets about it. He, he was fearful that they'll respond badly, that, that he, he's lost relationship with them, that they'll, they'll be led astray by these unrepentant sinners and troublemakers. Paul put it all on the line with them. I mean, he, he wrote them some hard truths. He rebuked them because of their sin and their failure to deal with their sin. And you know, that's something, as I said, that, that actually all Christians are called upon to do from time to time. Uh, it's not because Christians are you know, meant to be bossy and sort of, you know, judgmental and dogmatic. Um, some people have that picture of Christians, that that's what they're, they're, they're like, that's a caricature. But we're to do that because we're actually meant to be different from the world around us. Sin matters. And we're called upon to be different, to, to deal with sin. And that is, it's a personal responsibility, but it's also a corporate responsibility that we have for each other and for the church as a whole. Um, let me show you in a few other parts of Scripture. So in, in Galatians chapter 6, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. You see, that the part of our, our care for each other means that, that when a brother or sister is, is in sin, we must seek to restore them. We must seek to do that gently. Uh, we do it watching ourselves, that, that in our restoring that we don't actually, uh, that we don't ourselves sin. Uh, I think that can take many forms, maybe take pride, you know, a 
kind of, well, you know, look at what they're doing. Maybe arrogance, could be anger, could be slander. Uh, we should always, of course, be aware of the, uh, you know, the speck and log problem of trying to take the speck out of our brother or sister's eye and, and failing to see the log in our own. Uh, but we've got to do it gently and carefully, but we ought to do it. Likewise, in uh, Matthew 18, Jesus taught, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Sin matters. And we're called to deal with it, to be different from the world around us. And so if you speak to your brother or sister and they, they refuse to listen to you or to, to others or to the church, then Jesus says they're, they're, well, they're not being different from the world around them, so we should, shouldn't treat them as if they're different. Now, that doesn't mean that we treat them like a, you know, a second-class citizen or something. We still love them, we care for them, we pray for them, pray like, as we would for anyone who is outside of Christ. But if they're refusing to follow Christ... Well, they're not different from the world around them, and so we shouldn't treat them as if they are. Uh, there's another example in, in 1 Corinthians 5. You can look at it later. We're uh, rebuking someone who's sinning defiantly. Uh, they're called upon to do that, and, and uh, God's people are to be different, to be distinct from the world. So rebuking, correcting is important. But it's also hard and costly. And you, you see that in Paul. It was costly to him. I wonder how you think of Paul. You might kind of think of him as a you know, hard-nosed man who just says it how it is, calls a spade a spade, and you know, just let him have it with you know, both barrels, tough, blunt, hardened. Some people have that, that picture of, of Paul. That's not the Paul of the Bible. Turn back a page in your Bible to chapter 2, verse 12. Put on the screen as well. He says 2 verse 12. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So there's Paul. He's uh, doing what he does, preaching the gospel. God has, has opened a door for him. But... You think, well, Paul's just going to go, okay, let's get on with it. No. He has, it says he has no peace of mind because he didn't find his brother Titus there. Now, it's not that he missed Titus and you know, wanted to catch up with him. And it, it, it's because he was anxiously sweating on the news that Titus would bring from Corinth. How had they received the letter that he sent them? Had he hurt them? Had he, had he damaged them? Is it, is it all over for them and Paul? And well, more importantly, is it all over for them and God? So Paul is, is feeling deeply for them. Such is his love, his concern for them. And I think that's a real challenge and a real encouragement for us as Christians and as a church. Are, are we that committed to one another? Are we that, that close to one another? Or are we sharing life with one another sufficiently that we will, that we'll even know if a brother or sister is going off the rails? And are we anxious to, to find out how our brother or sister in Christ is going? Just as a, I guess, a related aside to that, I think the, um, the progressive pizza 
um, dinner last night was, was really great. Uh, there was about 30 people here and, and it was just you know, it was good to good chance just to, to, to relate together, to get to know one another better and, and uh, to share a bit of life together. I had some conversations with people that I you know, never had those conversations about those things before. That, that was really good. And I reckon given the past two years of lockdown and all the effects that COVID's had, we, we, we've got to make the most of opportunities like that. We've got to make the most of opportunities that we have before and after church and you know, the, the time that we have together to, to, to lean in to one another or maybe to change the metaphor, to, to branch out uh, and, uh, and talk to, to one another and maybe to others in our church that we don't perhaps know so well. Or maybe even people who are, who are different to us. See, I reckon we all have this kind of inbuilt mechanism to gravitate towards people who are like us. So Ben and I, you know, two old guys here, we just kind of, and, and, and Steve and, and Dave, you know, we're, we're the old guys, we just gravitate to it. No. I think we all have this kind of inbuilt mechanism to gravitate towards people like us. And in one sense, look, that's just normal. That's okay. But as a church family, we're actually different from one another, and God gifts us in that way. He gives, you know, gives different people in, in the body to, to be different. You know, a toe is different to, to an eye, but both are, are needed, both are important, and both need each other. I, I reckon it's, uh, it's good to, to recognise that within yourself, that you, you, know, you do like to kind of just hang with people who are like you, uh, to recognise that, and then to push yourself to branch out from that to foster a, a deeper, wider relational connectedness within the church family. I think the constant danger of any church, including our church, is that we just kind of stick with people who are like us, which can easily mean that cliques form, where, we, where others can, can be or at least can feel excluded. And I reckon a great antidote to doing that uh, sorry, to, to, to forming those kind of cliques, is, uh, is to do what I, I posted in a little, a few months ago, a little article called uh, 10 Minutes After Church. I don't know if you guys uh, read that. Um, but it says that the recommendation is to use the 10 minutes after church, the first 10 minutes, to, well, to, to lean into your church family or to, to branch out to others uh, in your church family. And not to talk to, to, well, not to do three things. Don't talk to besties. Um, they'll still be there in 10 minutes. Uh, don't talk to blood, that is to family. Uh, that's not, not the time to catch up with family members. And thirdly, don't talk shop. If you need to chat to someone about, you know, kids club next week or youth group next week or something, leave that for later. And use those first 10 minutes after church to, to devote that time to getting to know others in your church family, to invest in your eternal faith family and show hospitality to those who are not yet in the family. I reckon that's a great idea and I think it's a great way to, uh, to be a church family that knows one another, that connects well with one another uh, and to imitate Paul in, in his heartfelt concern for others. I think it's a real, a real challenge and a real encouragement to us. It certainly is to me. I reckon there's all sorts of things that can get in the way of, um, of us being like Paul in this. Um, individualism, busyness, poor priorities, maybe our own personality or just our own plain selfishness. Um, whatever it is, I reckon 
I say, let's push back against it. Let's lean in to one another. Let's reach out to one another. And let's strive to, to show that similar love and concern and care for one another that Paul had for the Corinthians. He felt deeply for them. Um, so back to our passage. What did he do? He reached Troas. He left what he was doing. He, he walked away from an open door of gospel preaching because he needed to know. He moves on to Macedonia. In chapter 7, verse 5, we read, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. Paul's fearfully concerned, which actually makes sense when you, you look at the background of what's, what's gone on here. Out of love for the Corinthians, he'd rebuked them. And doing that, rebuking someone out of love is a risky thing to do because you're putting yourself on the line or you're putting your relationship with them on the line. What are they going to think? How will they respond? The risk is they won't listen, that they'll just continue in their sin and they'll break relationship with you. And if you ever, ever rebuke someone for, for their sin, you'll know that, that's your fear, that's your concern. But if a brother or sister is caught in sin, we need to value their relationship with God. And, and do that over their, their relationship with us. Obviously, we want to try and keep good relationship with them, uh, as Paul was at pains to do, but we, and we need to do that gently, humbly, patiently as we go about things. But at the end of the day, if they're heading down the wrong path, a path of sin, we can't let our fear of, of losing relationship with them stop us from saying something. Paul was, uh, was fearful. He was in turmoil, wanting to know how had they responded. Moved on to Macedonia, hoping to hear from Titus. And then we read verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Paul was greatly comforted because Titus brought good news of their response. How, how was their response? Well, the letter hurt them, verse 8. It caused them sorrow, but it didn't stop there. And, and then it, he spells out two types of sorrow. Verse 10, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Two types of sorrow, opposite outcomes. One brings salvation, life. One brings death. Worldly sorrow leads to, leads to regret. You know, if you're sorry you did something, you regret it. But if that's it, it, it actually has no lasting effect. It doesn't produce any change. You know, to feel sorry for something, to even to say sorry, is not enough. I mean, think of the, the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, Matthew 19. Would teach you what must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus challenged him. He, you could say he rebuked him. He said, let go of your wealth. Stop worshipping this false god and follow me. And it says in Matthew 19 that the man went away sad because he had great wealth. He, he experienced sorrow. He was sad, but it, but it stopped there. It, it, it didn't produce change. Or take another example, Judas, who betrayed Jesus. Uh, Matthew 27, 
It uh, says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Judas was filled with remorse. He, he was sorry. He had regret. It's the same word, remorse, regret. Uh, he even took action. He, he, he returned the 30 pieces of silver, but he stayed in his remorse. He stayed in his regret. He didn't turn back to Jesus. He didn't seek forgiveness and restoration. He, his worldly sorrow led him to death, literally. Worldly sorrow brings regret, produces nothing. When someone says sorry but doesn't change, well, does their sorrow actually mean anything? In contrast, the other type of sorrow is a godly sorrow. Notice what it says there, that brings repentance that leads to salvation. Here's a little um, Greek lesson for those that like Greek and, or even a Greek lesson for those that don't like Greek. Um, the word repentance means change of mind. It comes from the, the, the Greek word is metanoia. Meta, change, like, you know, metamorphosis. Noia, like, like talk about, you know, someone, oh, I had no nous, nous, that kind of that meant mind idea. It's a change of mind. Repentance is to change your mind. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, to change our thinking, and, which is then reflected in a change of our behaviour. And repentance leads to salvation. How does the Bible call us to respond? Time and time again, the response is repentance and faith. Uh, think of Jesus, the beginning of his ministry. The time is near. No, what is it? He said, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. Repent, repentance and faith. Hurt and sorrow uh, that, that leads us to repent and be saved, that leaves no regret. There's no regret. There's no regret for the person who's doing the correcting. There's no regret for the person who's being corrected. The result of sorrow is either regret or repentance. Third example, Peter. You know, Peter, the Apostle Peter, denied Jesus three times when he was on trial before the high priest. Later, after his, Jesus' resurrection, he uh, questioned Peter three times. And after the third time, it says, Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Peter was hurt. He had sorrow, but it brought repentance, which led to life. So I guess the question for us, I mean, sitting behind this is, well, how do we respond to our sin? I mean, we all sin in various ways. The question is, how do we respond when we're made aware of our sin? Sorrow? Well, that, that's good, that's right, that's appropriate. But, but it's not enough. Being sorry is not enough. If it stops there, if you're left in your sorrow and, and regrets that you have. Godly sorrow moves from sorrow to a change of mind, to repentance, a change of behaviour that flows from that. I don't know where each and every one of your, your hearts are at, but it may be that some here tonight, actually that's... That's a new thing. That's not really something you've, you've done. Uh, we can move through life being good, being successful, even being a member of a church, but not actually know what it is to 
repent of your sin. And when you're confronted with your sin, maybe by someone else, maybe by God's word, maybe by the work of the Spirit, maybe all three happening together, it may hurt. It may cause you sorrow. But what matters most is whether it brings you to repentance, to change. And I'm not talking about, you know, have you, uh, you know, mastered all sin and become perfect in every way. Uh, I'm saying, has it brought about the change of, of mind, the change of direction from, from saying, I'm living for me, to I'm living for Jesus? That change of mind, that repentance is something that, that we all need, that, that fundamental step where we hand over control to God and say, I want to be obedient to you. I want to live your way. I want to trust you and follow. I want to trust Jesus and follow him. Maybe you need to take that step tonight. Actually, there's no maybe about it. If you haven't taken that step, you need to take that step tonight. But you know, that's a step that we continue to take throughout all of life. As we're confronted by our sin, as we face up to it, as we, we continue, continue to yeah, be, be confronted by our sin, we need to continue to repent. We need to continue to change. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And we do that knowing the, the wonderful news of the gospel that Jesus has died so that we can be forgiven. And by the power of God at work in us, we are changing. We are growing step by step. Uh, that, that'll continue throughout life until we die or until Jesus returns that's a, a wonderful process that God is at work in us. Friends, life requires courage. Uh, courage to, to rebuke a friend out of love uh, and to even do it when it causes us angst, even when it causes them sorrow. It takes courage. And on the flip side, it takes courage to face up to our sin. It may hurt. It may cause us grief. But godly courage moves us from sorrow to repentance and change. That's what we're called to do if we're God's people. How about we pray and ask that God to help us to do that? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Jesus. We thank you for saving us from our sin. Father, you call us to, to be different, to be people who, who deal with sin who repent of it, who turn from it. Father, we ask that you'd help us to do that. Please give us the courage and the humility to face up to our sin and to turn from it. And Father, please forgive us when we do sin. Please help us also to, to love and serve one another. Help us to reflect Paul's love and concern for the Corinthians. Help us to be people who, who push back against the things that erode our fellowship. Help us to know one another, to be real with one another, to love one another, and even to say the, the hard things to one another. Please help us to do that gently and carefully and humbly out of, out of genuine love. And Father, we thank you that you do give us one another. Please help us to grow together in godliness. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.